the real magic in some of the things we do is actually to say, do you know what, we can manage down your legal demand here by doing things differently. And I would rather be paid for making the process change or creating the data insight that allows the client to achieve better outcomes and spend less money than hang on for two or three years doing as much as possible, which is the traditional model. Hi, I'm Beldit Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'm joined by Matt Meyer, Chief Executive of Taylor Vinters, a law firm that supports the innovation economy. Matt will share with us the identity-led journey they've been on to clarify and strengthen their purpose. We discuss changes in the legal market that led to them fundamentally reinventing the way they work with clients. And he describes disorganization as a practical alternative to the slow and inflexible top-down model of cascading a strategy through roles and objectives. Matt Meyer, welcome. Thank you for joining us. You're the Chief Executive Officer at Taylor Vinters. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself, a bit about Taylor Vinters, and also a bit about what it means to be the Chief Executive Officer at a law firm. Very happy to do that. Thanks for allowing me to share this conversation with you today. So yes, my name is Matt Mayer. I'm Chief Executive at Taylor Vinters. I'm a lawyer by background. So I trained and qualified as a lawyer and spent my practicing days generally supporting technology companies during the the first dot-com boom and had an international technology practice. But I moved into possibly a management, but definitely a leadership career in about 2008, just on the eve of, of Lehman's collapsing. And I've been pursuing a leadership career since then within a law firm environment. And I think to, to your question about what it means to be a chief executive in a law firm, it's an interesting question because I, I think professional services generally have been slow to the party in terms of working out what the role of leadership is. And I think traditionally, leadership has been about being a, a custodian of a, of a practice, particularly in law, on behalf of the partners for a fixed period of time. It's largely been about coordinating activity, making incremental change. And we took a different approach. And I say we because I'm part of a, a three-person leadership team that includes a managing partner and a, a chief operating officer. But we took a slightly different approach, which goes to my role, which was to say, you know, actually, we need to run this law firm like other successful businesses are run. We, we took our inspiration from our client base, which I'll talk about in a moment. So my role as chief executive is essentially to be a, a leader uh, rather than a manager. It's about strategy, direction. It's about being an ambassador in the outside world for the firm and, and the firm's values and what we're trying to achieve. So it's very much an outward facing role for me which I wouldn't be able to do without the support of a, of a managing partner who does an amazing job of, of actually running our partnership as an organization and a chief operating officer that gets stuff done in a very supportive way. The business that we run is essentially a law firm which supports the innovation economy. So we're based principally in the UK, but we operate in Asia and the US as well. And we support businesses that are being um, entrepreneurial or innovative right from one man and a patent falling out of a university as a spin-out right through to FTSE 250, Fortune 500 multinational technology companies. And we support them trying to 
structure, protect and exploit their intellectual property assets, grow, enter new markets and all the good things that those exciting businesses do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and would you sort of say that description there is also your purpose, that sort of the core purpose of the organization is to support those firms or is there something different or additional? Well, there's certainly something bigger that provides the alignment and the motivation within the firm. I'd be lying if I said we started off in 2008 with a really clear strategy about what that purpose was. And I think when I talk to people about the importance of purpose in organisations, I think it's really important to acknowledge that actually that can be incremental and purpose is dynamic and that's fine. Too many people are afraid of not having absolute clarity about what that is, but it's a process. And the process that we've been through as a business, that I've been through as a leader, is really about honing in on what actually is it that people are motivated by. It's not a top-down strategy. It's not about me or the management team more broadly saying, this is our purpose get yourself aligned with it. It's actually a listening exercise. And we went through a process of listening to our business and and the people within our business at at all levels to identify what that purpose was. And the purpose today is a reflection of one of our core beliefs. And our our core belief is that innovation, the economy we support, but innovation as as a thing is a force for good and it can help tackle some of the world's toughest challenges. So our purpose in a crisp form is to help innovators and entrepreneurs shape a better world. But it sits on that core belief that innovation can be used for good and it's a source of solutions to global problems, whether that's environmental, societal or operational problems in businesses. But that innovation is a force for good and we should be a catalyst in that ecosystem. And that purpose came from listening to our people who initially, and probably going back eight or nine years now, expressed that as actually, you know, what we're really excited about is making great things happen. That was the phrase that came out of that consultation exercise. And we got hold of that and we worked with that and it's brought us to where we are today. Is there more you want to say about the firm or the clients or? Yeah, well, I think the important thing about the clients is we've chosen very consciously not to define our client base by sectors or organizational type. We've defined our client base by the characteristics of the people that lead those organizations. So they are innovative, they are entrepreneurial, interested in strategic change, they are concerned about impact, about societal problems. So we're not a technology law firm. I mean, we're not a tech sector law firm, although naturally, because of that focus, we have a very strong tech, life sciences, data core to our client base. We also have a lot of other businesses in a lot of other industries who are not technology companies who are doing things in a really innovative and creative way. And and that works very well with us. We have clients who are are charities, who are social ventures. We have clients in very dull industries, but who are really shaking them up in terms of the business models or the growth aspirations that they have. So it's about aligning with that client characteristic. And for us, that's brought an authenticity of approach because we're genuinely empathetic with those kinds of businesses. What we're terrible with is institutional businesses that want very structured repeat support from their law firm. So we tend to work on projects where something's being shaken up. It needs to be different. It needs to be redesigned or architected. And we do that with our clients. And then we typically step aside when it comes to the ongoing implementation of whatever that project might be. And typically it might be their in-house legal team that then pick up the reins and carry on with that work. I've kind of got that you as a firm like to work with people who are shaking things up and that in turn leads to interesting new different challenging legal and other questions and you kind of like those questions you like helping people shake things up and you kind of like the more interesting legal stuff or do i have that wrong 
You have that absolutely right. Law as a business, you can look at it in two ways. It can be a business that's about holding people's hands through unfamiliar transactions, delivering documents, projects, processes. And that's fine. That's good. That's good and interesting work. But law is also about a set of skills. And I think what lawyers do is undervalue the creativity that they have, the attention to detail they have, the ability to exercise judgment that they have, and the visibility that they have of so many different influences from so many different sectors and companies and management teams. So what I like to do is bring all of that experience together and say, if you're doing something for the first time, we'll help you do it for the first time. We don't have the answer. We'll sit down and use our skills and our experience to work out what the right answer is. So, you know, for example, we worked on a really interesting project a couple of years ago, and this was at the time when in the UK, a number of the challenger banks were starting up and we worked for a big US software vendor who was for the very first time bringing in a software as a service retail banking platform. So historically, retail banking platforms had been based on hardware in buildings, lockdown and security, and it'd never been done before in the cloud. And that brought together a series of complicated questions and challenges around risk and around service levels and security and, and regulatory questions and all those kinds of things. Um, and we were brought in to build that new business model with the client. And that was really exciting work because we were doing something that had never been done before. Equally, we might be working with some of our life sciences clients in, you know, in the last two years, working on how to bring something to market and get it regulated in a time frame that's not typical for, for, for a life sciences product or, or a medical device product. And it's, it's, it's how do you do that? It's not can you do that? It's, it's how do you do that? And that's the question we like. It sounds as much like a consultancy as I might, at least what I might imagine a typical law firm to be. Is that a fair description? And if so, is that a conscious intent? It's definitely a, a fair description. It's work in progress. It's an ambition as well as an accurate description. It's definitely conscious. And I see a professional services world where all of the things that we've traditionally charged for, you know, our deliverables, documents, time, outcomes, that increasingly those will not be the things that we charge for. You look at any other industry and those deliverable-based things are being devalued and given away or provided with technical alternatives. And that's great. That's progress. But what we will be charging for is the ability to give strategic advice, design advice, solution-based outcomes. And I think that does lend itself to more of a consulting approach because the skills that are necessary to deliver those valuable outcomes for clients are about listening, they're about creativity, they're about being iterative, and they're about working in collaboration with the client. And I think that's a very different world to the extreme of, I am an expert, I know the answer, I will tell you how to do it. All law firms are on that journey at different places. So you know we're not unique in that respect. But I think we do see a world where it's relationship-based rather than transaction-based. It's value-based rather than cost-based. And where we're working in partnership with our clients and in our space to do things that haven't been done before and to achieve what seems very difficult. And that does bring you back to purpose because I think to be authentic in that kind of relationship and to be authentic with clients that want that type of approach, you need to have shared values and aspirations. You know, ultimately in professional services, that's about stepping away from a mindset, which is I'm a lawyer or an accountant or whatever it may be. I have a technical skill. I'm the guardian of that technical skill and I'll deploy it clinically if asked to a world where actually what you're saying is I understand what you're trying to achieve and I've got skin in the game and I'm going to come alongside you and we'll work this out together. And I'm not going to apply a professional veneer that creates distance between us. I'm going to 
put that professional veneer to one side and I'm going to get up close and personal with you and we'll work it out together. But equally, you've got to work with us to work it out together, not expect sort of arm's length transactional relationship with me. Does that extend to working with other advisors and partners and consultants and maybe even other law firms? Or is it we're going to work with our client. We haven't really anticipated somehow being part of a much bigger cloud of people around them. Yeah, I like that phrase, cloud of people. I think that's an interesting way of putting it. Definitely. It's about bringing together skills and insights and working in a grown-up way together to achieve something for your client. And we, we definitely work with other professionals. We work with other law firms. If you work in an organization that's not about ego, you can actually focus on the outcome rather than the, your own ego and the inputs into that process. We have a, a significant practice helping um, multinational technology companies, typically in the US, deal with global employment law issues. That's called the one model. And we can only achieve that by working collaboratively with all of those other law firms and the client. You know, often we see that as an individual. But in this case, it's not just an individual, it's not just the general counsel, it's the HR director, it's the regulatory people, it's the finance team. And the ability to coordinate and shepherd all of that, sometimes working with you know, 20 or 30 local council in different law firms in different parts of the world with huge cultural and operational differences, pulling all of that together is actually the valuable thing. They're happy that we get the, the work done, but actually the valuable piece to them, the piece that they're comfortable paying for, is the coordination, the reporting, the making it actually happen across that complex environment of multi-jurisdictional multi-firm, multi-stakeholder in their own organization. Mm. But it, it almost sounds like there's a collaboration or coordination layer you're creating, almost, you know, like as in a, you know, a technology stack that allows something to happen for the client. There's no way it'd happen otherwise. Is that a conscious part of what you're doing? You know, is that almost like a service you offer to clients or is it something we do along the way? It's definitely a conscious part. It's come from actually listening to the feedback we get from clients about what's valuable and what's not. And it exists at two levels. So there is, your tech stack analogy is, a, is an interesting one because there are technology components to that. So you know, one of the things that professional services firms, I think are I'm generalizing, but not very good at is, is using the fantastic data that they have both on the individual client, but also on the client base collectively to provide insights to clients. So there's a technology piece which is about properly collecting and analyzing data and reporting that back to clients. That allows the client to make informed decisions about where they want to put their investment. So there's definitely a technology element to it. There's also a human element to it. And we've had to both recruit and train people to be able to coordinate and collaborate and project manage and listen. All of those things that make you an effective operator. It's people listening to this in, in different industries that that may be sort of entry level life skills to be a successful employee. But I think in professional services and in law firms, I don't take that for granted. I mean, people are you know, highly focused and expert in what they do and that the market has allowed them not to be an effective operator. So we're in a world where it's highly competitive and that's obviously now a critical component to being a successful advisor. But in our context, I need people, you know, right from qualification level through to partner level to be able to spot connections join dots communicate effectively across multiple organizations be able to perceive risk and judgment and also spot opportunity for improvement because the real magic in some of the things we do is actually to say 
do you know what, we can manage down your legal demand here by doing things differently. And I would rather be paid for making the process change or creating the data insight that allows the client to achieve better outcomes and spend less money than hang on for two or three years doing as much as possible, which is the traditional model. Does some of that reducing their demands go back to kind of avoiding whatever the issue problem was in the first place, or is it just sort of automating some of it out, standardizing out and getting the cost out? How do you actually do that? Um, There's definitely a bit of automation, and I think there's lots of discussion about, in our industry, legal tech. But that discussion is often about how do you do what you've always done better and more efficiently. It's rarely generalizing again, but it's rarely about how can we do something completely different that's valuable. So I think there's both opportunity there and activity. We definitely use legal tech in what we're doing. But more importantly, it probably goes back to that core purpose that we were talking about, which is it's about that desire to do differently to achieve better outcomes. So I think if what your people are motivated is operational or organizational process improvement, they just look at things differently. So they're spotting causes rather than symptoms and they're working on their causes. You know, in a practical HR example, if you've got a series of claims coming up in a particular jurisdiction or a particular region for a business or a particular product area for a business, there's going to be a reason for that. You know, I would rather work with a client to spend time understanding that. You know, is it about an individual that's gone rogue? Is it a cultural problem in a business unit? Is it a document problem? Is it a training problem? Is it a jurisdictional issue? And I think as businesses look for particularly multinational businesses, particularly US-based multinational businesses, look for consistency of approach and outcome, probably more than perfection at the moment. You know, it's about harmonization more than about achieving perfection. They need to understand what's driving difference. You have to have a bunch of people in your team that can get genuinely excited about what's causing that difference. How can I be creative? How can I be innovative? How can I work with the client to manage out that cause rather than just sit and be excited that I'm doing the 300 employment tribunal claims that come out of the problem? It's just a mindset. You know, fundamentally, I want to hire people that are naturally curious, who are confident enough to express and explore that curiosity, and who have the personality that allows them to listen and not just talk and transmit. And again, people outside professional services may think that's entry level, but actually if everything you've ever been trained to do is give opinions and advise, actually listening is quite hard. That is something that we do have to consciously work on in advisory businesses. Yeah. There's one thing I'm a little curious about. When you were describing sort of how your purpose came about, you you talked about, I think it was sort of back in 2013, this kind of listening to people in your own organization, this sense of innovation being a good thing and we want to help people do that came out. That's kind of been the thread since. I'm just wondering if at that time that was at all a contentious direction or statement for some or whether somehow everybody thought that was the right answer. I'd just be interested to explore the dynamics around all that. And if if it was, everybody thought it was the right answer. What were the conditions that allowed that to happen? Because it's pretty unusual, I think, for any group of people to always, you know, name anything and everybody goes, yeah, that's got to be it. Yeah, that's a really nice question, actually. I'm always really conscious that when you're listening to people, that you can also listen for what you want to hear. So so we had to work really quite hard to avoid that, that bias. But the process we went through was to talk to a series of stakeholder groups. So we, at the time, we were probably talking to 200 people. We broke them down into manageable groups and we facilitated a conversation within those groups and we listened. I would say that 
in every group that theme came out, but not from everybody. And the majority of people didn't have a view or wouldn't express a view. So what we were hearing was the view that individuals were prepared to express, not necessarily all of the views. But it came up enough times in broadly the same words often, but definitely the same sentiment for us to take notice of it. So we then went back in a second exercise and started probing what that meant to people. And suddenly you got much more engagement from those people that didn't have a view or didn't contribute the first time around. So for me, that reinforced the integrity that that was an important point. Having given people a direction, we recognised the enthusiasm around it and kept working with that enthusiasm. Was it contentious? Well, contentious is probably a strong word, but what I would say is we didn't start with a blank sheet of paper. So we like to model ourselves and our organisations that we support, and they're often young companies with an idea, and it's great because they're starting with a blank sheet of paper. We started with a law firm, piece of paper that had been heavily crayoned all over for the last 20 years and and suddenly we had to try and shape it into a particular direction so we did we certainly worked probably between 2008 and maybe 2015 we worked on a process of creating storytelling storytelling around this innovation theme and purpose focusing the business at an operational level into relevant areas and I guess shepherding an increasing alignment of people around that idea. But not everybody aligned with that idea. And you know, people left the organisation during that period. We sold parts of the business during that period that were never going to be aligned to that strategy, to that thread that ran through the business. And probably most importantly, over that period, we started recruiting people into that story. So there's a kind of generational aspect to it. So it takes time for those people who might be one or two years qualified, who are really excited about your purpose and and the way you're positioning your strategy to develop professionally and then be the leaders. It almost took eight or 10 years for that generation to come through. What we've seen as that's happened, we've brought more and more people into the business who started with that story is the sort of classic hockey stick. And I think where we are now is, is a real momentum around that purpose and that identity because all of that perseverance and effort over the last 10 years is coming together in reality, and as people progress through the organisation, who bought into that. Yeah. Um, I got the sense that you were almost sort of reorganising groups internally to better be able to deliver on what that purpose was. Is that right? That is right. If, if you think about a traditional law firm, it's structured by practice areas, which is about technical skills. And what we wanted to do was move away from that to try and structure teams or cohorts of people around client types and in our world that generally played out in terms of the growth stage of those clients so for example we created a specific team around emerging companies with multidisciplinary skills in that team that spoke to the particular needs of that client group equally we created a specific team that was just about advising large multinational companies very different skill set. You know, they need to present differently, speak differently, they need to be tuned into different issues and risks. You know, we've not achieved that in a purist kind of way, but that's the journey we've been on and that's the journey we, we remain on. Again, I think the, the successful professional services firm will be able to pull together the right skills and insights for the particular stage that a client is at in its journey or the particular characteristics of that client. And to be nimble and agile around that and not define the client relationship by reference to our own internal structure, but actually define it by reference to 
what that client's going through, what their priorities are. Yeah, so it's not a kind of sector organization. It's a cluster of typical client needs. Exactly. Exactly. So we have a document which we call the framework, but it essentially talks about all of the different needs and priorities that clients have at different life stages. And not every client comes in as a baby and goes out as an old person. They jump in and out at different stages. But being conscious of where that client is on that journey and what that client's priorities are is really important to putting the right team of people together. You know, we traditionally talk about the organization, the company. It's not. It's the individuals. It's the founders or it's the in-house legal team or in a family business, it's the family. It's, and you have to connect at that level to get that solution right. Professionally, I find that's much more satisfying. It's actually, a, it very much becomes a, a relationship-based business where you're advising empathetically based on experience that you've had in other similar situations for that client. And I think clients value that more. Mm. It seems to me, you said there were some exits, that you, you sold some bits of the business. It, it feels like there there might have been a time anyway, where it sort of felt like, are we really sure this is going to work? You know, we might even be getting smaller. There, there's some good people who aren't here anymore. How did you maintain the consistency of direction and make sure that there wasn't any sort of going back on it all? How did all that happen? So there were definitely dark days, and I think there were times when we went backwards to go forwards. But I never doubted it's the right direction. There were days when I thought, can we go through what we're going through at a kind of practical level? Can I hold it together? Can we still pay the staff? You know, those kind of practical running a business things. There were days like that. And I, and I think there were two, two things I would say that got, I was talking very personally here. It's two things that got me through that. One was being part of a really tight, leadership team so I, I wouldn't have wanted to be on that journey alone and you know I was on that journey with Ed my managing partner and Matthew my COO and, and there was a really strong human connection and support between us all and I suspect no one of us alone would have got through the period from 2008 to now on our own you know we were all up and down at different times and you hope that those ups and downs don't combine you hope that you're actually there to support each other at the right time you know, life gets in the way as well there were divorces there were bereavements massive client losses you know there were economic challenges all of those things are part of life and and we were there as a team of three to support each other through that so that was really important to me the other thing that was really important to me was just appreciating this is a gratitude point but just appreciating working with some of those bright young individuals that were coming through the organization and maybe this will resonate with other professional services leaders but i think there's a danger that in professional services firms you focus on the partners and it's all about managing the stakeholder group that's the partner group. But actually, there's handfuls or tens or hundreds of other people out there or thousands of other people out there that are full of energy and optimism and enthusiasm and special in their own way. And you've got to get excited about that and learn from it. I think you know, some of the darkest days, we just spent time with those people because they were young and energetic and excited about what we were doing. And you just need that drug from time to time to get you through. We talk about being an identity-led business. That's because we listen to our people. You know, our strategy is defined by the identity of who we were at that time. But it's also really important to acknowledge that that identity is constantly changing because the people, if you're an identity-led organization, a people-led organization, the people are changing all the time. Their priorities are changing all the time. Their life experiences are changing all the time. And you're bringing in a broader and more diverse range of experiences 
by design. So you have to evolve with that. And I think you, you know, as leaders in an organization, if you're not close to those people, if you're not excited about all of those things that they bring to your organization, you're missing a massive motivational opportunity for you as a leadership team. In the early stages of that leadership journey, it became very clear, um, particularly to Ed and I, the managing partner and I, that we were the bottleneck. We were the, the problem in trying to get some of the things done because we'd both come from professional advisory backgrounds where we had to do everything, be the advisor, we had to jump on every grenade that came in and we had to change that mindset to be successful leaders during that period and over that time. And we did that by taking a coaching methodology to the way that we led the teams. So we, we both trained over a period of time as coaches with an organization called Baylor Campbell and that allowed us to work in a different way and to lead in a different way with our partners and our people, which you know, essentially was about making sure we didn't have the longest to-do list and that we were supporting and empowering people to identify the right questions, come up with solutions and stick to those solutions and shepherd the organisation strategically as well as lead it. And this group of three, were you together through this whole journey since 2008? I mean, that's a, an awfully long time. So Ed and I have been together uh, during that period. Matthew joined us partway through. But even so, it's in law firm leadership terms. Either you go back to this custodian model where the turnover is quite rapid or you have these teams that are multi-generational that, that last. I think that the consistency of the team has been important to the consistency of the strategy. And there's definitely another 10 years in it to really deliver on the, the vision that we had. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how we're going to do that and <laughs> And who's going to do that? But you can't do these big changes overnight. You know, you have to be in it for the long haul and you have to have everyone with you. Mm. I know that it's, a, it's very difficult to predict, but do you see any big sort of shifts in who you are or what you're doing that sort of the next big hurdle for the organization? Or is it still very much a sort of listen, test, learn approach? No, I think we're in a market that's seeing a lot of consolidation and a lot of pressure on profit and a lot of competition from non-legal service providers, all of which I think is good. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means doing all of the things we talked about today. We're doing the right things. We're on the right path. I'm happy with our focus. I'm happy with our market. I think we've identified the things that need to be done, but we need to make a step change in scale and pace of adopting those things. So in practical terms, it's about having the capital to invest in the right technology infrastructure to really be a smart business. And if the future is about data and reporting and insights and all of those kinds of things, you can't do that as a sideshow. That has to be a really core cool part of your business. You need to bring in the technology. You need to bring in the professionals that can do that really effectively. I also think we need to really attract the best talent into the organization. It's a cliche, but it is a people business and talent ultimately is the differentiator in that competitive and consolidating market. We have a unique approach because other people aren't doing it. So to define those other people is quite hard. It's an incredibly difficult talent market in professional services generally, definitely in law. So we have to focus on what is it that's going to attract and retain people. And I think in our case, Clarity of strategy has allowed us to compete in the talent market. Strong identity, culture, purpose. We need to go deeper and more authentic on all of those things, not just because it's who we are, but because it's how we attract the people we want to be us in the future. So we need to go deep on, on purpose and identity and culture. And we need to be able to 
reward people in the way they want to be rewarded. And that's a complex landscape because we're definitely seeing in some practice areas, not all, but in some skill sets that people aren't interested in that traditional partner route and that relationship with a law firm and being an owner and participating in profit. They're they're less interested in that. What they are interested in is more dynamic careers, access to capital value rather than income, the ability to have probably a pluralistic approach to their career. So I think the model we've traditionally had of you will only work for this law firm. You will do it 80 hours, not us, 80 hours a week. You you will be remunerated in the long term by having a share of profit and you'll be here for 30, 40 years. It just doesn't fly. <laughs> and I understand that. It doesn't fly for me. So we need an alternative to that. I feel like I have to ask you sort of directly about this deal with Mishkan. Is that a key, you know, sort of a step in that journey you're talking about there? Or was that aimed at something else? No, that's that's definitely a step in that journey. It's a strategic combination, which essentially means that the two law firms work together in a group structure. You know, that in itself is novel because there are very few, I'm not sure there are any group structures where you've got completely different law firms working together to share resources, to collaborate in achieving market goals. It is in itself novel and it reflects the underlying character, I think, of both firms. We're very different firms. But the sense of innovation and creativity exists in both firms. And it was that cultural alignment that brought us together to look at this kind of combination. So, yeah, that's an exciting next chapter. Yeah, really, really exciting next step. And um, I'd love to have you back in a year or so and just hear, hear how it's all gone. Just before we wrap up, is there any question I haven't asked you that you wish I had? Any topic you wanted to touch on that we really haven't a chance to explore? I think that what's been good about this conversation is we've touched a little bit on the individual. But I think that philosophically, our view is that we need to move away from this kind of pure top-down approach, the traditional model where you have a strategy and then you cascade it down through a series of objectives and roles for people. It would be interesting to explore that further and maybe another time we can explore that further because I think the businesses need to come off the reins a little bit on that. And my view is what you should end up creating is an organisation where you've got a strong sense of organisational focus and purpose and direction where you can rely on alignment of activity and spirit and value to achieve something as an organisation rather than hierarchy and structure and objectives to achieve that. So I think the real magic is to try and create an organisation where everybody in the organisation has this kind of supported autonomy which only works because there's a strong alignment of purpose and value system. And I think that's something that I think about a lot. Where's that balance between those two things? We use the word organisation a lot. I often challenge myself around that word because I think instinctively I like disorganisation, but without the negative connotation that comes with that. And maybe that comes from working with lots of innovative growth companies, but there's a real power in disorganisation. And there's a real question, which is if you haven't got organisation and you've got disorganisation, what do you replace it with? Back to where we started. For me, that's about purpose. That's about identity. That's about values. That's about storytelling. So for me, my default position is, and this is why I'll never be chief executive of PLC, right? Because my default position is those things are really, really important. And we have to find a way to up those skills as a leader and facilitate that supported autonomy. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree with that. And the bit I'd add is I think that sense of shared purpose is even more important if you're trying to work collaboratively across different firms, different 
people who are paid different ways, you know, all that sort of stuff gets even more difficult, I think, and even more disorganized. So you, you still need something that pulls it back together again. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been, for me, it's been really inspirational and educational. I'm sure it'll be really interesting to talk in a year's time. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, it's an exciting period. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist.